Hello and welcome to Healing from Within. I am your host, Cheryl Glick, author of The Living Spirit, Answers for Healing and Infinite Love, which share stories of spiritual awakening, communication, healing energies, miracles, and ways to use intuition and inner guidance to navigate the world making better choices and decisions. Today we welcome once again John Vespasian, author of his newest book, Undisrupted, who helps us develop a sound plan and strategy to determine if life is running smoothly is if it's filled with success and happiness, or are you sometimes faced with dis- disruptions and periods of chaos and need strategies to make better choices for success during any challenging time? Hello, John, and thank you for joining us once again on Healing from Within. Hello, uh, um, Cheryl. Thanks for having me on. Uh, to listen to other interviews with John, go to the radio page of CherylGlick.com, my website, and go to May 2019 to listen to John discuss his last book, Sequentiality. John, you know, as listeners of Healing from Within have come to expect over the years, my guests and I seek ways to understand both our human and our energetic duality so we can merge the best of mind, body, and soul to understand the human condition ourselves and to make choices to further health, prosperity, happiness, and the best version of ourselves, no matter what the challenge is. In today's episode of Healing from Within, we will begin to discover one of the keys to dealing with disruption or times of crisis as we rely on what we already know and employ skills and assets gathered in our past that we know and trust. We may discover that life tends to punish lack of preparedness very harshly, and also discover when disruption happens, we may not have time to think or look for answers. We must be ready with a few good strategies. John will share stories of dynamic people like Sava Mamontov and Albert Schweitzer and others who were unprepared and unable to prevent disruption from hurting their lives. So, John, you may remember, I always love to ask my guests to think back to their childhood or early adults or something in their life, a person, place, or event that may have uh, opened them up to a big awareness to themselves and uh, to a meaningful life for themselves. So think back. Well, I remember when I was a kid, the first time I went to the library, I was super happy to get um, a library card. I don't know how old I was. Uh, maybe uh, eight, uh, ten years old. And uh, I, I started to borrow books. Uh, at the beginning, I could uh, read only very simple books. And at a certain point, I remember I thought, uh, who, what kind of people write these books and, and mm. uh, how long does it take? And now, um, uh, many years later, many decades uh, later, I'm writing those books. So um, it started uh, with a library card. You know, that's an interesting story because I remember I went to the library every week to get new books and bring back the old. And I had to walk about mm, eight blocks to get there. And I was so happy just being with books and touching them, selecting, making my own choices. 
When I was in high school, I remember thinking, I was writing a poem, and I remember thinking, it might be interesting to write a book. <laughs> But I never really expected to. And then I was told by spirit that I was going to write three books that were going to be used for teaching. And that, I said to myself, well, I don't know about that. And I've already written two, and the third one is getting close to fruition. So it is interesting to think back to our childhood and how our destiny was already there. Yeah. So let's go uh, yes, on. Yes, it was, but... Um Yes, uh, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Well, I was going to go on to tell us what motive. You've written many books, but what motivated you to write your newest book, Disruption, and how will it help prepare readers for challenges? Yeah, I, I got the idea for the book uh, while I was reading the biography of uh, Salam Amontov you just mentioned. He was a very uh, wealthy, very um, uh, well-known industrialist in the 19th century, one of the most uh, famous uh, Russian industrialists. He was the Russian equivalent of uh, Andrew Carnegie. He had uh, railroads. He was building railroads from Moscow to the east. And uh, when he was in, mid in his mid-40s, he was a celebrity. Uh, in, Western in Eastern Europe, he was on the newspapers very often. He had a huge house. In Moscow, he had a, a house in the in the south of Russia. Uh, he owned um, a very large company uh, listed in the stock market, and he was on top of the world. Mm -hmm. And the story is fascinating because within a few years, uh, Mamontov uh, destroyed his life. He just started um, uh, to get into uh, another business he wanted to expand, so he started uh, a steel manufacturing um, uh, business, and it was a disaster. He started to lose money. Uh, in order to cover the losses in the steel manufacturing, he used money from the railroad. And when his shareholders uh, found out, they were very angry, so they, they sued him. He was prosecuted uh, for embezzlement. Eventually, he didn't go to jail, but he lost everything. He lost his uh, house, his shares, his company, everything. And the last uh, 15 years of his life, he was living in complete uh, misery, to such an extent that uh, even his uh, friends, his lifelong friends, wouldn't even talk to him. And I found the story fascinating because the question is, how is it possible that such a sophisticated, uh, highly educated, experienced uh, manager could destroy his life uh, in such a way? And I found the, the question fascinating, so I started to research, and I've been researching the, for a year before I wrote the book. I researched many, many biographies, many stories from different centuries, trying to establish the patterns that uh, lead people to make this kind of huge mistakes and also the strategies that we can use uh, to prevent them or to correct them. Well, absolutely. And you wrote something that sh sort of showed something that he did wrong. He became emotionally involved. He wanted to do something without being prepared. He was very good at what he did, but he wasn't prepared to go and do what Carnegie was doing. So you wrote individuals who thought themselves blessed by fortune, will unexpectedly suffer road accidents, get fired from their job, go bankrupt and lose their health, get divorced or get sued in court by friends, business parties or third parties. Others will lose their savings in catastrophic investments. 
Lack of preparedness is dangerous, very dangerous. I do not recommend it to anybody. You can be wiped out by factors that are not even mentioned in books about success. Those books will tell you what to do to get ahead in life, but that is not enough. You need to know as well how to deal with disruptions. I cannot emphasize enough the necessity of having sound workable strategies for dealing with disruptions or better still, avoiding them. It's a life or death question. Now, you know, I have discovered over time that even if you are well invested and prepared in an area, for example, teaching or acting or managing, whatever it is, It usually takes about 15 years to become completely competent and proficient. You don't usually reach success in the moment. It is a bit of learning, preparing, maturing, and having all the skills at your hands. So that's been my... my, I I liked reading this story, and uh, while I was sad that he had trouble in later life, it does help us to understand how his life was disrupted, um, and how he became highly emotional, got his priorities wrong, and just made huge mistakes, right? It happens, um, unfortunately it happens um, to thousands of people Mm. every year that uh, they get into this pattern. And um, what I've done in the book is to go through success stories and failure stories and try to show the patterns. Um, We just mentioned Mamontov. And the, the main idea of this uh, chapter in the book is that when you are dealing with disruptions, you have to react from your strengths. You have to rely on things you know, on people you know, assets you have, uh, experience, uh, professional uh, knowledge, whatever. And the, the, the cardinal sin when you are dealing with uh, disruptions of any kind, whether it's in your health, finances, career, whatever, the cardinal sin, what makes people drown is to improvise. Mm. Improvisation is the, I would say, is the road to hell, is the path to hell, because once in a, in a blue moon, it might help, it might work, and you see this in movies, and sometimes movies, you see people improvising, and they get it right the first time, and it's so cute, but in real life, it's very dangerous. And this is what actually uh, drowned, completely destroyed uh, Mamontov's life. He started to improvise, uh, he had a very nice life. He could have let his uh, steel manufacturing go bankrupt because it was a separate company. He didn't really have to, um, to be uh, uh, caring so much for it. But he wanted to, um, to avoid uh, even the, the shade of failure. And in the end, yeah. he destroyed his life. So the, the principle is super important. Never, never uh, improvise when you are in a crisis because uh, you are playing against the odds. What you want to do is to put the odds on your side, and the best way to do that is to rely on something you do well, something you know well, assets, friends, relationships. When you're in a crisis, do not improvise. You know, what I thought of when I read that story, because it was just in the news here in New York last week, I, I, I began to think of President Donald Trump He was a land developer and real estate specialist, but in the 1990s he got involved in building casinos in Atlantic City, and he lost over a billion dollars, and they were talking about it. So I guess he overreached. He wasn't prepared for that field, and there was a disruption, but he let it go. You see, what you were just saying is 
you need to let go and not keep beating a dead horse and pouring more and more assets into something that has no chance of survival. So I think Trump did it, and I think the other man that you were just talking about, for whatever reason, wasn't able to let go. And and it's important to know when to do that, I would say. So let's go on to, you speak of an, a scientist, I like this story too, Valdemir Kowalski, and he, yes. he had an interesting life. He started out as a lawyer. He had great skills in speaking five or six languages, and he ended up in the field of paleontology. So tell us a little bit about him, because I found his story also very interesting. Uh, Kowalewski is, uh, is a fascinating character. Um, he could read. I, I don't know if he could actually speak five languages, but he could read. Um, he was um, earning a living as a translator while he was studying law in uh, Petersburg, in St. Petersburg, in, um, in Russia. And then he started to translate um, books by uh, Darwin the, um, the th- about theory of evolution into Russian, and he got very interested in the, in the background. So eventually he decided to change careers, and he and his wife, they went to, uh, to Germany to study. Um, at that point in, in history, you didn't have paleontology as a, as a science, you had geology. So he started uh, geology, he got a PhD, and what made uh, Kowalewski actually go down into history is that uh, he found very quickly an explanation uh, to a riddle that nobody in the 19th century had solved, and it's the following. And this is very much linked to the to the principle of uh, survival and evolution. And Kowalewski, um, when he wrote his uh, PhD um, uh, work, he was trying to solve the, the following question: If you go to a museum in the in the U.S. or in Australia or in uh, South America, you find these uh, small horses. They are the size of a cat, and they are very very um, uh, similar to today's horses, but they are they are really very, very small. And in the 19th century, uh, and you have this, um, these fossils all over the place. Huh? Every, every, I think every museum in the U.S. has uh, this kind of fossils because in, in this, these animals were very uh, widespread, very much widespread in prehistory. So in the 19th century, everybody thought that uh, these small horses, I mean, just to call it horses, just to call them horses, they were a different species from today's horses because they were mm. so, so much uh, smaller, uh, the, the skeleton was a bit different, and uh, only Kowalewski, when he was uh, he was a very enthusiastic uh, reader of Darwin, he discovered uh, how these small horses became big and strong and fast, and he uh, developed the theory of disruption. This is why I found the, the story fascinating for the book, because Kowalewski thought, look, these small horses that were living in in, in, the, in America, also in South America. And they were eating uh, blades in the woods, but eventually, uh, thanks to uh, or due to the climate change, uh, the trees started to grow, and the, and the uh, horses could not buy, could not find food anymore. So they have to go into the prairie. They have to go into the open uh, areas where there were very uh, many predators and a big cat. So they, they started to uh, to um, to run away. They started to uh, to really they have to run to survive. And generation after generation, um, thanks to these disruptions, because they have to face uh, predators, they have to face uh, constant danger, 
they started um, to do, to die. Those that could not run, they started to disappear. And those who could uh, go faster and they could become stronger, they got more children. And after several generations, they started to grow a little bit, a few millimeters, a few centimeters. Mm. And after thousands of years, thanks to disruptions, and this is the whole principle Kowalewski discovered, thanks to disruptions, they became stronger, they became faster, and they became uh, much larger. And Kowalewski thought that this principle uh, applied only to horses. He could not actually see uh, the wider implications because he was writing only about uh, horses. But this is a principle that applies actually to all living creatures. Uh, You become stronger and you become more intelligent, more alert, thanks to disruptions. If you just stay and do nothing and you stay passive, like the horses that were living in these uh, woods, they were mm. happy, they were well-fed, but they didn't grow. They just stay small, mm. and they could have been uh, going like this for generations, but it was a change, it was a disruption that actually forced them to rely on their strengths. And again, I come to the principle that I mentioned before, they didn't create a new animal. They didn't become something else. They became themselves only, only better. They just yeah, only only better. better. And this is this is uh, this is a pattern that you will find in every single story in the book. When people go through disruptions and they do very well and they actually they become even better than before, it is because they become more what they were already. Mm. Uh, they they uh, become a bit faster, a bit stronger, a bit uh, more um, uh, intelligent, more knowledgeable, but they do not improvise. It's the horse is a story, it's a key story. And Kowalewski discovered the principle. Unfortunately, in his life, he didn't follow it because he made all kind of mistakes um, mm. against the principle. And eventually, he got into businesses he didn't know anything about. He lost all his money and ended up uh, committing suicide. It's a very, very sad story because he discovered the principle, but he didn't understand the wider implications. Yeah, so the insight here is nature will typically deal with disruptions by enhancing existing strengths, not by random moves or improvisation, which, as you say throughout the book, really works. And he was not able to to do that and and it is a shame when such gifted talented people cannot see that they've discovered something that will help them but they move on to the next thing trying to find some perhaps other way to do things they already have the answer now go on to uh, you tell the story of how a desperately ill woman turned her life around and you take a close look at faith healing and offer a variation of positive thinking that really works. So tell us something about that story. Well, uh, this is actually a, a couple of stories about uh, positive thinking and faith healing. So I took, uh, in, the, in the book, I took a very close uh, look at um, uh, uh, what they call Christian healing or, or scientific healing, which is uh, actually is a, a, a Christian um, religion. It's very, very, uh, very, very strong in some countries. And uh, also we have it here in Europe. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a worldwide uh, religion. And um, they use uh, faith, uh, Christian faith, uh, to cure, uh, cure basically disruptions. Huh? Because it's not only health, it's also uh, stress, it's also uh, people yeah. who are uh, very unhappy, relationships. So they use this principle. And I found this uh, very intriguing. 
I took a look also at the, at the biography of the founder of this religion, was Mary Baker Eddy. And uh, I have to say, um, I cannot uh, contest their claims because they have massive uh, evidence that uh, they, they have a system. They, they, they actually cure people. Otherwise, I guess they would not be so successful. But what I try to, to find behind the, um, the stories or behind the biography of Mary Baker, behind their theories, is the explanation. So how is it possible that uh, so many people get uh, healed, uh, they get uh, rid of their disruptions? And um, what I found in common between this um, uh, religion, with this, uh, this um, Christian um, uh, denomination and other similar stories in other countries, in other uh, areas, is that uh, when people actually um, reduce their level of stress, and this is something that uh, they do very well, I have to say, uh, people who work in this area in the Christian, uh, what they call themselves Christian scientists, I would say they are experts at uh, reducing stress. They are experts at uh, making people understand what they have done wrong, uh, how to organize their life, how to actually recover uh, serenity, and uh, what I I, uh, I drew from the stories is that you can apply this principle uh, to reduce disruptions across your life. Uh, even if you are not uh, a, a believer in this uh, religion, in this denomination, as a Christian scientist, from the point of view of, uh, of general personal development, if you manage to, to, um, to reduce your level of stress by using their methodology or other methodology, because there are many different methodologies, if you manage to get your life straightened out and you get um, a clear idea you want to do, uh, you get uh, a, a, to identify exactly what is bothering you, which is not easy, right? because some people, they have a general um, feeling of unhappiness and they, they, they complain, but they do not really point out what the real problem is. And what these, um, these people in, the, in Christian science, they do extremely well, is to actually uh, identify problems, uh, to, uh, to really isolate them and to try to get people a uh, focus so that they can improve their lives. Well, so I that, found the story very... Yes, well, go ahead. Well, let me add to your story. I am a Reiki master teacher. I follow the Yusui method from Japan, who was a healer. Um, throughout the world, in every culture, there are people who are able to help other people feel their energy, know their thoughts, know their problems, reduce stress. That's what I do. So I do it by helping people relax their body in a system that I've been trained in. It's a form of meditation and it is a form of connecting to new perceptions about yourself, what life is all about, what you want to create with your thoughts, because thoughts are very powerful. And it is the same, whether we call it spiritual healing or energy healing or universal healing or stress-reducing healing. It is a system that deals with the inner component of a person's energetic life, and it's very powerful, and it can work on, on many levels. But a person has to want to improve their life. You cannot help someone who fights you, who thinks they know it all, who, as we were talking about earlier, goes into improvisation, right, beyond 
having the system of proof what they know well and what they do well to go into a system that's that's not going to work for them. So it's very similar in a way to what you were talking about. So what would you like readers to take away with them after reading Undisrupted? Well, um, if you can take just one, one principle from the book, it contains many different strategies, but if you just take one, uh, I would like people to, uh, to try to focus on the end game. Uh, whatever they are doing um, in, the, in, the, in terms of profession, in terms of uh, hobbies, in terms of ambitions, um, relationships, uh, you have to go above the disruptions. You have to look beyond. Uh, you have to look at your life in terms of a lifetime. You're going to live 80, 90, maybe you're lucky you live 100 years. So most of the disruptions that um, uh, really drain people, they drain their emotions, they drain their finances. Um, if you look at them from a perspective of a lifetime, uh, they would look, um, they would, you would put them in the right size, which is usually not catastrophic. The problem with, um, with the stories in the book, when you see people really destroy their lives, it is because they, most of the time they overreact. Uh, they have a financial problem or they have a health problem. And instead of trying to stay calm and really, which is easy to say, I understand, it's, uh, it's uh, something you have to get discipline to do that. But if you really get um, over uh, emotional and you start to panic, right. uh, you are going to make mistake after mistake. Yeah. And, and this is, I would say, is easy to easy to say. No, uh, you it, need to really practice. That, yep. Yeah, it, it it is a discipline, and you can learn uh, to conquer any challenge. Yes, by remaining unemotional, having a breathing technique, a meditation technique, understanding that life unfolds in a way it will, and you cannot change everything, but you can change yourself and your reaction to it. So that is part of the way to deal with it. I also like like that you discussed the labor theory of value, uh, where you believe um, people who are passive and hoping for change and improvement of their economic conditions and keep just simply investing more time and effort. And they expect if you keep doing this and doing it, you're going to have success. But you said that the labor theory, which was suggested by Karl Marx and others, is wrong because in real life, and that's not always the amount of labor. So what is it that will bring us success? It's not always well, the amount um, of time it, and effort. Yeah, you're right, but um, uh, it's not self-evident, and this is why it's so popular. I, I think uh, most of the people uh, in in some countries, most people believe in the theory of labor as it was uh, an absolute truth, and it's not. It's not. But it's not self-evident. We tend to believe that uh, just by putting more hours and by doing uh, more work uh, automatically leads uh, to success, and it's not, it's not the case. If you look at the stories in the book and you see people who really built uh, large businesses, they become very successful artists, you will see that they just uh, were very uh, patient, very persistent in finding um, a, a market or finding a, a market segment, sometimes very small segment, where they could actually become successful. It's not by, by doing uh, always the same and working very hard that you will see people uh, becoming very prosperous. And just to give you quickly um, a story from the book, uh, I analyze in detail, for instance, the career of uh, George Stephenson and uh, Robert Stephenson. They were entrepreneurs in England in the, in the 19th century. They, they became quite wealthy 
and they started from scratch. There are people who have no education, they had no possibility to go to, uh, to school, they could barely read at the beginning. So it was a very uh, interesting story from the beginning, but eventually they became successful because they evolved a little by little, first they, they got uh, as much education as they could uh, get because George Stephenson, for instance, he got a very, um, very lowly employment, but he used his money instead of buying beer, uh, he would pay uh, a night school to learn to read. And once he learned to read, he could learn more things and eventually he started uh, to get uh, a mechanics job. Then he started uh, to, um, to design simple machines, and eventually he started uh, manufacturing uh, locomotives and became very wealthy. This kind of evolution that takes uh, time, in the end, is the best strategy, and the book shows many different stories because it reduces the risk. Uh, I was talking about improvising as the most uh, Dan- um, unli- most dangerous, yeah, yeah, most dangerous. Uh, when you see the stories in the book, people who become successful, uh, you see they, are, they were not super brilliant. They were not super um, educated uh, sometimes. They were not uh, from very uh, well-connected families. But through uh, evolution in their careers, by learning different things, by pushing forward little by little without taking a lot of risk, they did very well. And you see many, many examples in the book. You see in different areas. You see in areas of industry. You see uh, one of the stories in the book is also, for instance, a gardener uh, who used to make uh, used to make uh, glass houses. Eventually, uh, started to make uh, buildings to design buildings that look like uh, glass houses, and became also very famous and very wealthy. It's the story of uh, Joseph uh, Paxton. And you see this pattern of career development, of personality development, is very, very strong. You see in history many examples, and this is what I recommend in the book. If you want to minimize disruptions and maximize your chances of success and also of happiness, I think this is one of the best strategies to adopt. Yeah, and I would say follow your heart, follow your passion, keep improving, be consistent, be patient with yourself, know what you know because you know what you have to learn if you know what you know. So I want to thank you, John Vespasian, author of Undisrupted, for once again, through the historical stories of famous people, we discover ways to value change and improve our decision-making process based on knowledge and clarity of mind, heart, and body so we can avoid human error and improve our destiny. This book presents real-life lessons that can massively increase your ability to succeed in the face of disruptions. For more information and to purchase any of John's books, go to Amazon.com. In summarizing today's episode of Healing from Within, we have begun to discover one of the keys to dealing with disruption and times of crisis as we learn to rely on what we already know and employ skills and assets gathered in the past that we know and trust. We see that life tends to punish lack of preparedness harshly, and also we discover when disruption happens, we may not have time to think or look for answers. We must be ready with a few good strategies strategies and John has shared amazing stories of dynamic people who were unprepared and unable to prevent disruption from destroying their own lives but also gave us tools to assess when a self-made 
disruption or one that happens on its own may be approached with greater awareness and make it work for our greater good. We have discovered the most basic technique for dealing with disruptions. Know what you know, know what you don't know, and stay away from the latter. John and I would have you maneuver disruptions in your life, accepting them as opportunities for you to further know your own talents and interests and continue to grow beyond fear and limitation. As you employ the skills of self-awareness, master your emotions for defining life in all its miraculous wonderment. The key, of course, is preparedness and good decision-making skills. I am Cheryl Glick, host of Healing from Within and author of The Living Spirit, and invite you to my website, CherylGlick.com, to read about and listen to visionaries, leaders in the metaphysical, scientific, educational, and medical fields, as well as the arts and music, as they search and lead us to know more about the human and divine connection. Shows may also be heard on webtalkradio.net and dreamvision7radio.com. Thank you.